You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Hi, everybody. You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. We have a few people here today. You have me, Cherie, and... Deacon Basil. And Chris. I like that we do these introductions because we rotate our cast so often. I don't want our listeners to get too disoriented. That's true. There's been no one on every single episode. (laughs) No. I I mean, I was just actually thinking about that. Um, The closest was um, the Sin episode where it was the three of us and Sarah, who is, is, I think, currently in, like, post-op recovery or something, so... (laughs) <laughs> yes, nothing serious, so don't, nobody freak out here. No, 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 no. But anyways, yeah, so, but I think, I think you're right, but, you know, it just kind of cycles around and everything, and then we bring Brittany and, uh, and Grace yeah. as well, and we have some guests uh, moving forward and everything, so yeah. Um, you wanted to just mention something really quick that yeah. you've been thinking about. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to, I wanted to clarify something about that same episode, when we talked about sin. Um, I listened to it again. For those of you who don't know, I edit the podcasts, and then Deacon does mostly everything else. So, most <laughs> props well, to him. People mostly. do more. So, I mean, should we? Should, should we advertise it? I mean, but, but yeah, the okay. website. Anyway, so uh, while listening to it, Shuri, I don't mean to diminish your role. Oh, thank I you. I just meant to applaud Deacon's role because I know it's no easy task. Yeah. Um, at any rate, um, that's another sin on my conscience. I just accidentally uh, denigrated Shuri's contribution to the podcast. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Um, I, while listening to the episode, I got the impression that, you know, we, we were really trying to um, talk to listeners who might be dealing with scrupulosity and feelings of guilt, inordinate guilt. And uh, in, in talking about sin as a privation and talking about concupiscence as a desire for good, I don't want anyone to get the impression that we're making light of sin or that sin is like not a big deal. Like, oh, yeah, you're shooting for a lesser good. No big deal. You know, yeah. you missed the mark a little bit. Like. I've been thinking about the sex abuse crisis in the church and like some really horrible things. And it's just like, you know, sin, I mean, evil is nothing to make light of. And, uh, and it is very grave. And, and Aquinas talks about sins of malice in addition to sins of weakness and sins of omission. And so I really don't think we touched much on sins of malice in that episode, but something for our listeners to consider that we're not like a pro sin <laughs> podcast. Right. right. The, yeah. And, and, you know, we record these things, weeks and weeks in advance and so you know i, I know uh, uh bishop Barron had that kind of you know moment of realization as to what we're talking about doesn't necessarily correspond with how the news uh, uh w- when the news breaks and then we post something that sounds a little odd to that um so that that yes sin is both a privation and and um a sickness and has those different characteristics to that. And yes, you can be looking for sin behind every single action that you do. And then at the same time, you can also um, pretend that sin is not a big deal um, and it's a-okay. And that's not good on either end, so that it's both mm-hmm. end. But I'm, I'm also, because I just work with so many women, Christian women, who take that to the extreme that sin is too serious. Yep. And they hold on to the guilt and shame even after confession, and then they have a hard time even moving past that sin once they've even been forgiven. So um, there's even that complete opposite end of the spectrum that isn't healthy either that we don't want you to do. 
Yeah, I mean, I've worked with many clients with that same disposition. Yeah. And so I think if we're addressing that podcast to like our clientele and, and people we know, you know, certainly we, we just want to reassure them that, you know, you do have you do have forgiveness through the sacrament mm-hmm. and you can be made whole and you can recover from this. But at, at the same time, I mean, there are people in this world who have who have sinned in such grave ways that, you know, our Lord says it would be better for them to have, to have a, you know, um, a millstone strung around their neck, right? So there, there yeah. is gravity. It, it, it's mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, okay. Uh, today we're not talking about sin. No. Um, we're talking about attachment, which is um, something that, admittedly, I am not too much of an expert on at all, <laughs> so I will just sit back and listen. But, um, no, attachment in general... Um, I think one of the things that we wanted to kind of start with is what is attachment and where did it come from? So, Chris, I know this mm-hmm. this is a particular passion um, with the psychoanalysts that, that, that you find interesting. Yeah, I think over time I've, I've become more and more interested in attachment theory. Any Anytime you work with kids, it's going to mm-hmm. come up. Um, and attachment, what, what a lot of people don't realize, because it's, it's a bit of a cottage industry, right? Like you can go get a million self-help books that talk about your attachment style, but it actually grew out of some really interesting research done by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, and they were, um, you know, psychoanalysts. John Bowlby was, was influenced by the object relations school of psychoanalysis, so people like Melanie Klein and, and Winnicott were talking about the way we relate to others early in life and the way that how that informs our our like psychoses and neuroses so here's a handy definition john bowlby gives in his book a secure base which is like a distillation of volumes and volumes and volumes of research into a really short very readable um series of essays and the link is down in the show notes for this oh yeah attack quote attachment behavior is any form of behavior that results in a person attaining or maintaining proximity to some other clearly identified individual who is conceived as better able to cope with the world, end quote. Attaining and maintaining proximity to someone else. Usually we think of that in terms of the infant and the mother. So go, go ahead and describe that a little bit because, you know, I'm sitting here going, okay, where's the, where's the core belief? Where's the cognitive distortion? You know, so, so I was actually just waiting for Sheree to jump in. Yeah, you're like, okay, what does Sheree have to say about this? Yeah. And when I hear that, and, and even in my work, even with kids, it's like, how close are they going to let me get to them? Yeah. How, and not even close in proximity in regards to distance Mm -hmm. right are they going to let me hug them Mm. but are they going to let me know them are they going to talk to me and not only talk to me about the weather and their day and what they learned but open up and feel safe and secure enough to to express a need hey i'm hungry i'm thirsty instead of feeling like they have to go take care of it by themselves yeah that's like an extended sense of the term attachment, right? Like mm-hmm. not just being in physical proximity, but emotional proximity, yeah. right? Or you could even say spiritual proximity, right? Um, yeah, one of the most interesting, I mean, some of the research that really prompted Bowlby to reconceptualize the way we view child development were the experiments by, uh, I think, Harry Harlow on rhesus monkeys. <laughs> yeah. And and at the time, this Freudian drive theory was dominant that... Um, and also, you know, some of these also like neo-Darwinian theories that said that the primary needs of the infant or of the, of the, 
of the young developing member of any animal species are going to be food and and like breast milk if they're mammals and so harry harlow created um like fake mothers for these monkeys and one of them was made out of like wire like something you wouldn't want to hug but it dispensed <laughs> milk and the other one was like soft and furry and warm but gave no food and which one do you think the monkeys preferred? The life-sustaining one or the emotionally-sustaining one? Well, I, I remember from Psych <laughs> yeah. 101 that it yeah. actually is the, uh, the, the, the emotionally-sustaining one. Which Isn't is that amazing? So it's yeah. even deeper. It's an even more fundamental need than some of these physiological needs. The infant clings to the mother that provides warmth and security and comfort. And I think that's what's... Well, first off, those experiments were done before they had institutional review boards and ethics things and everything like that. Some of the monkeys, I think, sued them after yeah, the fact they, for <laughs> violating uh, the ethics code. Yeah, the, ethics the Belmont board. report. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I think I think what's what's so fascinating about that, and I think you're kind of getting at that, is that this was for monkeys, and actually is the same thing for children, um, uh, infants, and children in general. Yeah. There's this. There's other research that um, came out of uh, orphanages in, um, I believe it was the Ukraine, Ukraine right? Ukraine, yeah, yeah, in Ukraine, um, where uh, there would be children who had all of their physical needs met. Uh, they would be fed, they would be clothed, they would be warm. They have sleep, a sleep, bed, everything, yeah. but they, they wouldn't have any other kind of physical contact with, a, with an adult or a nurturing person. And a, a lot of those children um, died or had serious um, psychiatric uh, issues. And of course, this was in the, you know, in the situation after the Cold War or, or even before when there wasn't a lot of resources and things like that. But the ones that sustained were the ones that were being held and comforted by the by the caretakers and the ones that were, you know, emotionally close to the to the uh, oh man. Well, having emotional needs met. It's horrifying. In NICUs mm -hmm. until very recently, like in like in the last maybe two, three decades, n neonates weren't touched mm -hmm. in yeah. neonatal intensive care units. Right. Yeah. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. But think about even in our justice system, the worst possible punishment that you can receive is isolation. Yeah, that's very true. Mm -hmm. You still get food and water, but <laughs> oh, yeah. isolation is the punishment. And and what's interesting about that is that there are psychiatric, major psychiatric mm -hmm. issues that can come about if you're in uh, solitary confinement for a long extended period of time. Yeah. Oh, completely. Um, and that's just, that's just radically interesting. Now, I'm, I, I'm just going to take the conversation and steer it the direction real quick that I want to talk about. But in, that, <laughs> By all means. in that regard, I think it's really interesting that if that's the worst punishment that the Justice Department can hand out, it's really interesting that the height of the spiritual life is the hermit. The anchorite, the one who is completely reliant on the Lord for all emotional sustaining. It's only um, apparent an apparent contradiction, I right. think. Yeah. So it, I know we always try to tie this into Christian theology. So in prep for this, I found some articles that I didn't read in full because this one in particular was behind a paywall. <laughs> oh well, yeah, no. <laughs> but why, why pay for research? This one, um, this one article was like a, 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 I forget the author, but it was like essentially a look at salvation history through the attachment theory lens <laughs> as like God is the secure base for Israel as like ambivalent avoidant attachment. And like, I think, I think, I think a hermit 
has has transcended you know um, aspects of this wor worldly life that the rest of us haven't but the metaphors that all of the mystics use to, to describe their relationship with God, even with God the Father, are like maternal metaphors. I mean, can I, can yeah. I read a little bit from Isaiah chapter 66? Um, Rejoice with Jerusalem. This is from starting from verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her that you may suck and be satisfied with her consoling breasts and may drink deeply with delight from her abundant glory, moving down a few verses, that you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. Mm. That's mm -hmm. the way God is described. To... Yeah. Yeah. I think um, kind of getting into even kind of a new or... You know, we were coming on here trying to think about, okay, what does attachment look like with parents and kids? And a, a concept is how does attachment manifest itself in relationship with God the Father and with Christ? But I think that even our earthly attachments and what we develop with our earthly parents actually dictates a lot of how it looks with God the Father. Mm. And that with pursuing God the Father. So say we have um, an unhealthy attachment, an insecure attachment, an avoiding attachment with earthly father, earthly mother, then pursuing security and really delving deep and pursuing relationship with God the Father can actually change your attachment style. Yeah. And be healed. And be healed. Yeah. yeah, because, well, God the Father is perfect, and our yeah. earthly parents are not perfect. So he provides us all we need to have a secure attachment. We do have to be vulnerable and open to receiving that and pursuing that mm. and not let our earthly ideals and experiences dictate how we, we view God. Like, we have to be able to recognize oh, yeah, I'm reacting to God the Father that way. Like, I'm angry at him or I push him away because, well, my earthly father isn't safe either. That's right. So he isn't going to provide me what I need. Yeah. I, I actually yeah. remember one of the most haunting passages from the from the Universal Catechism that, mm. that just really spoke to me um, was in relation to, um, well, the First Commandment um, and, and sins against the First Commandment. And... and they, the the council father, or the fathers that wrote the universal catechism pointed out that bad example is one of the reasons why people mm -hmm. will go down that. And so I think that's exactly yeah. what you're kind of getting at. The the example that I have of my parents, particularly my father, but in general my yeah. parents, or bad ex uh, attachments that I might have with men in general or women, you know, whatever. Yeah. Bad attachments growing up or in my childhood can then manifest in my relationship mm -hmm. with God. And I'm saying I'm not a, I'm not able to approach God the Father because my father I was unable to approach him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hopefully be healed through that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's in the instance where we make God in our image instead of yeah. letting God make us in His image. Yeah. And and even thinking about my personal life and my personal attachment of I remember there was a 
big change in my attachment style when I started calling God the Father Daddy. Mm. And really kind of looking at how he really provided for me throughout my whole life when some other people necessarily weren't doing that. And that really kind of created a more deeper sense of security mm-hmm. and kind of changed that for me. So, And I see it with so many women, especially women, but men too, absolutely men too, that you know they have a hard time having a relationship with with God the Father. Isn't that, isn't, isn't that how Jesus uh, um, um, Jesus approached his father? Didn't he use like the sort of the diminutive form? Isn't Abba yeah. like yeah. closer mm-hmm. to daddy than father? Yeah. yeah. That's what I'd heard. Yeah, absolutely. And, one of, and, and even think about it because we're in relation to attachment. I always like to say attachment is and builds and is healthy when the parent is accessible, responsive, available to their child. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of in any relationship. So accessible, available, kind of that connectivity, that um, closeness, right? And we think about one of the most heart-wrenching... Consistent, predictable. Yeah. One of the most heart-wrenching parts of Scripture is when Christ calls out, God, God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Like it's one of the most heart-wrenching parts mm-hmm. because... A child calling out to their father, where are you when I need you? To their parent. Yeah. Oh my god. And it gosh. just harkens back to this sense of attachment. Yeah. And I feel like so many children are screaming that nowadays. Mm. Where are you? Yeah, yeah. When I need you. That's, oh my gosh, that's so profound. I mean, it's very like a very Viktor Frankl sort of thing, right? For Lo- Viktor Frankl's system of logotherapy, it's like you, you have to assess how the neuroses and disorder in your relationship with God, right? Or with the mm-hmm. ultimate. And, and I, I really love this attachment lens. Um, I'm kind of thinking about like, I guess, classes of people I know who have, like what, what does an ambivalent attachment style look like to God? And what does an is avoidant attachment style look like to God? And what does a disorganized attachment style look like to God? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I, I do, but I think we should define each of those in non, um, non existential <laughs> God terms. Begin with the more first, known yeah. and enter into the less known as yeah. Aristotle saith. Okay. Uh, Sheree, do you have, um, you, you know about these things better I, than I do. <laughs> I'm like trying to think if I have I have all the definitions for like every single category of you can, attachment style. You can so read I'm like, direct quotes from that book and we'll so, put a link at the bottom. So I'm half tempted to I'll, just kind of go through it. I'll do it. Unless unless you have some probably better. Um, you know, it's, a lot of this stuff came after. So actually, if you read some of the er, early Bowlby stuff, like disorganized attachment wasn't even one of yeah. them. Yeah. So yours okay. is probably more comprehensive. So... Anyways, so we have, it's, the book is called The Developing Mind. It's by Daniel Siegel. And so he kind of gives um, definitions of each type of basic attachment style that there is. And so there you have the secure attachment, which is a coherent, collaborative exchange and able to reach each other's needs and response and be available and responsive. Mm-hmm. So like the infant who knows that the parent is safe mm-hmm. will go out into the world and explore, 
after a few minutes of exploring, feel a little bit uncertain and look back and see the comforting presence of the attachment figure and say, okay, I've got this. So an example of that, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that my child has perfect attachment with me. Well, anyway, I thought your but... child was like a, a, a hermit monk spiritual master. Oh, oh that's my that's my five-year-old. That's <laughs> Yeah, not not the young. Um, but, but what happened is, so we had um, my, my youngest in the office here, who's 14 months right now, and she would walk into the other room. It's locked, everything's secure mm -hmm. and everything. She'd walk into the other room, walk around a little bit, and then come back and just, mm -hmm. just peek in to make sure... <laughs> Uh, her yeah. mom and I were still here, and then she'd continue about, and she just kind of peek in, so that she she felt safe enough that if something happened, we would go into the other room and and, mm -hmm. and help her. Totally. Yeah. And then we have avoidant, which this kind of is demonstrated by the child will fail to cry on separation from the parent, and actively avoid and ignores the parent upon reunion. So they'll move away, they'll turn away, they'll try to get out of the parent's arms when picked up. And there's little or no proximity or contact seeking. There's no distress, no anger upon return. Mm. And the response to parent appears unemotional. And they return to focus on toys and environment throughout everything. So the, the, the context for this seems to be Ainsworth's strange situation test. Um, for the listeners who don't know, that's where the, it's an experiment where an infant is put in a room and uh, their caregiver is with them. The caregiver leaves and a strange person comes in plays with the infant for a little bit and then leaves and then the main caregiver comes back mm -hmm. and and it's that return that tells you what the attachment style is and mm -hmm. so in this case you're saying when the caregiver comes back they're like not really happy to see them yeah <laughs> yeah and you know you think of a a, a teenager right or mm -hmm. even a young child you come home and they run to their room yeah or they focus on their environment they don't say hi they distance themselves. They might even not want you to talk, ask them how their day was. And so that's kind of... And and for teenagers, that is a, a normal psychological yes. state. So, yes. so just if your teenager does that, don't think but yeah. that, that, but yeah. that, that they have This is kind of like an extreme, issue, yeah. especially when they're extremely young. Absolutely. If yeah. they're doing that, you know, you're, because if you think of a secure attachment, you know, you come home and... Your child's running up to you like, Mommy and Daddy, hi, hi, hi. Mm -hmm, and yeah. they kind of tackle you. And Isn't that, doesn't that manifest in older, uh, in like adults as a avoidance of intimacy? Yeah, of? avoidance of intimacy. But I hear even so many couples complain. And this kind of just comes up in, you know, one of them comes home. And they immediately go into the other room. Yeah. They mm -hmm. avoid immediate contact. They avoid, oh, I don't want to go there. I don't mm -hmm. want to ask them about their day because I don't know what that's going to bring up. Right. Or I don't know how they're going to make me feel. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, sometimes I, I've heard that, you know, um, inconsistent parenting. Um, parents who aren't safe, you know, who might um, either through intentional or unintentional neglect not be able to meet some basic needs, mm -hmm. that often results in this kind of avoidant attachment. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the next one. I, 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 I'm sorry. I feel like I'm the PSA here. I also want to just say that just because you might see that one time in some child's mm -hmm. behavior does not mean that they are have some kind of pathologic situation. Yes. Thank you for that. We can't say um, that enough. I, I, yes. We're not trying to freak our listeners out. We're not trying to freak out. our listeners out. Yeah. But it, I think it is necessary to say that, you know, if this is something that you see in your child or, or some child that is in close proximity to you on a regular basis, mm -hmm. maybe seeing professional help might not be the worst thing. 
but this has to be on a regular basis over a period of yeah, I worked work. <laughs> with traumatized children yeah. for years, and so this, this is my normal. Sorry, yeah. guys. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be very consistent right. with with behavior. Mm-hmm. And then we have what's considered either resistant or ambivalent attachment, and this is going to look like where the child may be wary or distressed even prior to separation. So they may even sense the parents about to go away or even kind of distressed early on Mm -hmm. or continually. And you might even not know why, but they're distressed about you leaving. Is this like the clingy, like extreme separation anxiety Mm -hmm. kind of child? Yep. And, And they have little exploration. So they, yeah, the clingy kind of child that will never go on their own. Mm-hmm. They don't walk too far away from you. They don't really want to learn about new things mm-hmm. and, and kind of scared to do things. Sure. Like, no, I won't do that unless you're with me or even that still seems scary. Oof. Yeah. And and then there and this is comes so so they also fail to settle and to take comfort in parent reunion. So at the same time when the when the parent returns, they still are unsettled. They're still un, uh, consolable. Mm. That almost sounds like a precursor to like a borderline kind of presentation. Yeah, please don't leave me. Yeah, please don't go away. But I'm gonna push you away still. But yeah, I'm gonna push you away still. Uh-huh. And then when you come back, I don't want you. <laughs> I don't want you. Yeah. 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 Please come yeah. back. Well, and borderline personality disorder in the long run. I think all the research is indicating that it is that kind of same kind mm-hmm. of personality, yeah. uh, that, that it's this attachment style taken on, on steroids. Oh yeah. There's some really cool like longitudinal mm-hmm. studies right. on that. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're the child that even when the parent returns, they're going to continue to cry mm-hmm. they're, But again, they're not going to want to leave the parent, but they're going to continue to be distressed. And, and even in this study, they kind of, um, pair it with a preoccupied parent. Oh, okay. So, does that have disorganized in there? Yes, that's next. Okay. Yes. Just checking. Sometimes it's not there. <laughs> Calm down, Chris. I know. <laughs> so the preoccupied parent is going to be seen as angry or passive. So mm. that's kind of the main characteristics of a parent who's who's preoccupied. Yeah. Like you can never get, like you're constantly trying to get their affection, mm-hmm. and you can never achieve it. Yeah. And because you're. In, you're upset. The child's upset, right? And then the parent, instead of being comforting and soothing, is reacting back in anger. Mm. Or just passive and just ignoring it. Yeah. And then, so the next one is disorganized or disoriented attachment, where the infant displays behaviors in the parent's presence, suggesting a temporary collapse of behavioral strategies. So they're just kind of, in a way, not functional. Mm-hmm. And you probably see a lot of that, Chris, in your that's work why with trauma. I kept asking yep. about it. Yeah, that's the one I see. <laughs> it's so, hard to work with, yep. by the way. So, for example, yeah. the infant may freeze with a trance like expression, hands in the air, may rise at parents' entrance, then fall prone and huddle on the floor. They may cling while crying hard, leaning away with gaze averted. Um, and so, and sometimes they will fit some of the other attachment styles as well but without any clear pattern they'll Mm -hmm. just jump from avoidant to ambivalent and it's like there's no predictability this is the hardest one it's almost like the attachment system has completely broken down Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that's kind of a good way to put it. It's just they don't really know how to react. They're kind of even neurological systems kind of like on overdrive and it's yeah, just completely. not even connecting in any kind of which way mm-hmm. and making even any sense of their environment. Yeah. And this kind of comes from a disorganized parent and this really beca- this shows a lot of and associated with a lot of loss mm-hmm. and abuse. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, disorganized parent means more mm-hmm. than like parent that has like too many tabs open on like Google Chrome or parent who <laughs> has mm-hmm. like not cleaned out their car in months. This is a parent who's neglectful or abusive. Right. And even if you think about sexual abuse, it's very confusing because yeah. those who who target kids, right? They make them feel really comfortable. Mm-hmm. They they make a child come to them, want to be with them. Mhm. And then they hurt them in a very, make them feel really uncomfortable mm-hmm. in yeah. a sense. A lot of survivors of sexual abuse will say that one of the hardest parts of their recovery is the fact that they still have warm and affectionate feelings for their abuser, particularly if they were kids. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a situation where the abuser is actually more affectionate, more welcoming and more affirming of the child than their own parents. And so they, they turn to the abuser as their secure base, only to only to be severely damaged by that mm-hmm. person. So I mean, just imagine that the impact that has on the child's sense of the world. Right, and and then even what even makes that worse for a lot of children is eventually when they tell a parent or an authority figure about the abuse. <sighs> yeah. And this person who is supposedly supposed to protect them makes them feel guilty or ashamed or they're lying or don't say things like that or even even protect and support the abuser. Yeah, that's absolutely devastating. Yeah, that happens oftentimes when Mm -hmm. when the abuser is a um, boyfriend or spouse. Yeah, someone close to the the primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, horrible. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I do think it is important to say, you know, I worked with adult survivors of childhood mm-hmm. sexual abuse mm-hmm. and that, that healing, even in those terrible situations, I think this is on my mind recently in particular, but yeah. healing, even in those moments is possible. Totally. E- even with that disorganized um, parenting style, uh, attachment style, uh, that that healing is possible. In yeah. 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 In our, in our biblical trauma episode, you know, Sarah talked about... Um, kind of res- resilience in some of these like in Esther's story and in other like heroic biblical characters and so there is there is a way to to transform that suffering into um strength yeah for sure absolutely very hopeful note um I want to I want to raise an idea and I would like you both to respond to it um I was wondering I was kind of wondering about attachment styles and why why is it that so many cr- Christian parents really like attachment parenting. Now of course we could probably trace it back to like people like Dr. Bill Sears, William Sears who's a you know Catholic I think pediatrician who wrote a lot mm-hmm. about this but I I was looking at iconography mm-hmm. and like um early renaissance and medieval paintings uh depicting um, the Blessed Mother and the uh, Child Jesus, and like, in all of them, she's like cradling mm-hmm. him, holding yeah. him close, like loving him, nurturing him. Like sometimes he's like sucking at her breast. Like, 
do you guys think do you guys think that that was like the like that's intentional well, is there a message there for the I, Christian faithful? I, I can speak from an iconographical, iconographic <laughs> uh, um, perspective on, on that. Is that the Theotokos, which is the title for Mary, um, is always pictured holding Christ. Mm. She's never pictured on her own. Now, I'm sure someone will point to that one icon in one situation where she wasn't. But traditionally, she would actually never be doing that. Actually, I can think of, like, the only time that she's not is, like, Our Lady of Holy Protection or, oh. or Holy Protection itself, you know, mm-hmm. where she's holding her, her cincture wrapping Constantinople. Yeah. In, in which case, she's still a secure base. She's still the secure base, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But the point for that, from an, from an icon perspective, is that Christ is the, the purpose and the Theotokos is actually directing people to Christ. Yeah, sure. So I would almost say it's actually the inverse of what you would expect, that Christ is the secure base. Uh, base and we are coming to to the Theotokos and Christ at the same time. I think it has to be both um, yeah. because well, Deacon Nursery, what's the heresy where it's like um, Christ is fully divine and not man? N- Nestorian? Or is uh, that where he's, he just has two natures? Um, um, yeah, what's that called? We're going to edit all of this out and we're going to sound brilliant here. No, okay. it's okay. We're human too. Um, I think... I think uh, the Docetists, mm-hmm. yeah, think thought think right. they thought that Jesus was kind of a spiritual being. Yeah, that he wasn't one person with two natures. He was just divine. Is just, that kind of that's kind of what I'm yeah. getting at. There was such a heresy, yeah. was there not? Yes, or some sort of theory and heresy, an argument towards that. Right, like well, and even um, even in the uh, um, you know around the time the devotion to the Sacred Heart came mm-hmm. about, there were these like. Was it against the Jansenists who were who were kind of against like they they were like nah Jesus mm-hmm. didn't have like emotions mm-hmm. or you know, affection yeah. so anyway what I'm getting at is that if we really want to hold to this Catholic truth that Jesus was fully human mm-hmm. then we have to expect that his relationship with his mother included these sorts of like psychosocial somatic material mm-hmm. components including an an attachment relationship and it wasn't just like yeah. this you know, like reverse thing where the child was the, had the parentified role. No, I, I really think Mary had that relationship with, with mm-hmm. Jesus. I really do. That's yeah. And, and kind of, um, I'm really bad with names, so I don't remember the names of the kind of the theological theories on that, but there's the idea that Jesus is human in nature and clothed in divinity or div- divine in nature and clothed in humanity. Mm-hmm. And... But I, and Deacon, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the church teaching is that he is both human and divine at the same time, and he is not. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting question from yeah. from an Eastern versus Western perspective. Yes, on that. okay, um, that, that's probably a Western perspective of of my school. Right. So. so, so, so the East would say that Christ was, and it's even defined yeah. in his in his uh, in his clothing on on icons. Yeah. That it, it is, he was first divine and then clothed, was clothed in humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the sense, when you see an icon of Christ, right. he's always got the red, which is a symbol of divinity, as sure. the lower garment and then the blue as o- over it. And the Theotokos Mary, and, is yeah. the opposite, yeah. But I think what you're, what you're still pointing to is that it doesn't matter which one he had those kind of relationships yeah. with, with Mary. He had those kind of relationships. And I think sometimes we can 
theology and spirituality is a dance. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we can we can go too far to one side mm-hmm. and we're in heresy. Mm-hmm. We can say Christ is fully divine and you're a heretic. You can say Christ is fully human and you're a heretic. Christ is both fully human and fully divine, yes. and that both of those um, are important. And so we can then say, um, but but I think one of the temptations in modern church that I see is to pretend like humanity is completely, um, it, to, to divinize humanity, which is a weird way of putting it, especially for an Eastern boy, um, but to <laughs> divinize humanity to a point where you take out the entire sort of human aspect of it, where it's like, Oh yeah, you know the saints were these perfect angelic creatures at every moment of every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that's I, a really pernicious error, actually, because that takes away the gratuitousness of the supernatural. Right. Like, the, like grace is a gift. We don't like no through no action of our own can we actually um, develop, habituate, or merit the supernatural, the um, theological virtues. They. They're given to us by our baptism and our participation in the mm-hmm. sacramental life. It's a supernatural thing. And I think what's interesting about that is then to say that, for example, the hermit has this perfect um, this perfect state. It is not necessary to have any kind of attachment in any way that he's this, this Gnostic um, you know, yeah. person off in the yeah. field, uh, off in the, the desert, really mitigates the human structure. Because I, I, I think the other thing that it does is it then says spirituality and sanctity sainthood itself is something that is completely Mm. outside of who i am Mm. and that i i can kind of touch it every once in a while maybe if i go to to a mass depending on who's preaching or or how reverent the priest is right right Mm. but really deep down that divinity has nothing to do with what i do on a regular basis Mm. and i think that what we're all getting at here is that that divinity is in iconography, that's the goal. That's the ever-present yeah, thing sure. in all of the icons. And that's what it's like in our lives. Right. Oh, We just have yeah. to experience that. And so the attachment that we have with our parents, with mm-hmm. our children, with our spouse, with those around us, those can be divinized experiences. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And experiences of attachment with God, uh-huh. which I think is grace itself. Yeah. So when I'm attached, I'm just waxing. <laughs> no, it's actually very yeah. beautiful. When, I, when, I agree. <laughs> when I'm attached to my wife... Uh-huh. I have an experience of that deep attachment to her, but also that deep attachment to the divine. Completely. Remember in the introduction, I think it was in our first episode, you know, when I spoke of um, how does Catholic counseling play out for me? And I talked about, well, you know, it doesn't have to actually look that different. It just has to include a moment of intersubjectivity because God is a communion of persons coexisting eternally. And um, so, you know, this communal aspect, this relational aspect of our nature is so profound that the attachment relationship we have with, with people in our lives is like itself an icon of the mm-hmm. divine. Absolutely. Does that make sense? We're getting so yeah. heady, but I <laughs> love yeah. it. But I want to go back, Chris, mm-hmm. to your idea of where does attachment come into play and show itself between Christ and his mother, the Theotokos. Yeah, what do you think? And I had a few thoughts come to mind and especially thinking about the seven sorrows of Mary mm. and <laughs> I gotta think him through it <laughs> he's like that we can cut out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's just being but, humble he's setting a good example but one of them is Mary losing Jesus in the temple mm. and, and and thinking about that like that separation was so anxiety provoking for her 
right? Now, Christ, obviously, Jesus at, at a young age had a very intimate relationship already with God the Father. Mm -hmm. So, at least in Scripture, he seems to be doing fine because he's, yeah. he's in the house of his father. Yeah. But but Mary's kind of freaking out, like, like, like oh, I don't, would. Yeah, yeah, like a mother would, like, no, like there's an attachment on the other side too for mm -hmm. a parent with a child of like. I'm supposed to be taking care of him. I'm supposed to be watching over him. I'm supposed to be attentive. Mm. And she was probably anxiety ridden by, oh my gosh, I just lost the Messiah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like, oh my goodness. But and, he, but he's, but he's with his secure base. Yes, he is, in in the house of his father. So. Yes. But I also don't want to mitigate the Theotokos being Christ's secure base as well. Certainly. I mean, I, Absolutely. I, I, think yeah. that I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. This but is why theology think, is hard. <laughs> right, exactly. Because I also think that, that you can also get into that divinization, uh, or excuse me, the, the pretending like Christ was this you know, had no human side whatsoever. Right. No, absolutely. And that's what I was trying to get away from earlier. I mean, you know, like when we think of Christ's childhood, which we don't actually get very much of in the scriptures, mm -hmm. um, you know, there were some mystics who had visions of his life and, and they look different. And some of them are, we ought to take more seriously than others. But generally I like it when he's portrayed as like a typically developing child. Mm -hmm. And like, he probably needed to be steered in mm -hmm. the right direction and like taught, you know, of course he, he, we, 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 in the scriptures we're told he grew in learning and wisdom, right? I think yeah. at, mm -hmm. at the hands of his parents. And so, um, yeah, I really like that. I think that could be a really cool devotion, you know, like think about that, like yeah. our lady <laughs> of secure attachment or something, you know? But, and so another moment that comes to mind for me in that regards is I can even think of the passion of the Christ. Cause I think that mm -hmm. movie kind of displays it really well in this scene. And at least for me, it's, as a woman, I really, my, I, I can just remember this getting to my heart is when Jesus is carrying the cross and the, his mother is witnessing all of this. Yeah. And you see that she's being held back and she's trying to get to him, to comfort him, to wipe his wounds while he's carrying the cross. And you can see the, the heart-wrenching part that this mother wants to go and comfort and soothe and and be there for him and the fact that she can't that she can't get to him because i think even in the movie like you see people literally stopping her and right. she's trying to like reach out to him and and that that part of and it's kind of just going back to attachment where she's used to being able to do that for him mm. when he's young and, he, and i think even the movie shows he like falls down and scrapes his In knee or something like Christ, that yeah and yeah. he falls down he scrapes his knee and she's able to run to him pick him back up and kind of mend him yeah and creating that kind of secure attachment for the both of them and it's kind of beautiful to see and even when i think about kids mm -hmm. and not to not dads in any way but moms tend to be a little bit more nurturing a little bit more gentle i mean for the seems most like part. for the most part i don't want to you for know the most part, start but assigning when, yeah but when i think about morally normative usually kids when they fall off their bike they get a bruise on their knee who do they usually come crying home mommy 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 it's very primal yeah yeah even soldiers in combat will mm -hmm. cry out 
mom when they yeah and, and and like you said it's kind of primal like yeah. we have this instant when we get hurt we want our mother wow that's like super intense really heartbreaking i mean when you think about that definition i read in the beginning this like desire for proximity with someone who's more regulated than us mm-hmm. when you're when that's frustrated that's like an assault right? on the body Right. And then, yeah, and then, and then, and then the ultimate, fi- the final example of yeah. attachment between Mary and our Lord is in like the, the, the tradition, the sculpt- sculptural tradition of, of depicting the Pieta, like her carrying him yeah. after his death, like not even right. letting him touch the ground. Like cradling him, like he leaves the cross and goes immediately into her, her arms. I'm reminded of the Akathus hymn which is an Eastern Catholic, Eastern Christian hymn. It's kind of the equivalent of the rosary at the Eastern Church. Um, And in it, you list every single title that Mm -hmm. you can think of to Mary. Which which some are absolutely um, fascinating and and so fun. Um, And foreign to most uh, Western Christians, actually. actually, Like, uh, wound ever hurting to demons is is one of my (laughs) favorite. Which is really fun to be chanting, but I, one of them has always has always really stuck with me, and it was, um, it was, um, the one the the harbor, the place of secure attachment, the anchor, and and Mary is depicted in in particularly in Western iconography, um, but as being that anchor, that secure base as well. And I think you know we talked about God the Father mm-hmm. as being that secure base, um, in general, but I also think that the Theotokos can be that base Mm -hmm. um, psychologically for a lot of people as well. Absolutely. And just to kind of go back to where, like, there can start to develop that secure, uh, insecure attachment is that idea of, okay, a child runs home, it's bruised and scraped, and it's screaming out, Mommy, Mommy, I fell down on my bike. And the mom goes, oh, you're okay, whatever, go yeah. Go clean up. Yeah. Even if it's something like ostensibly, apparently small. Yeah. You know, like, uh, has any ever, has anyone ever seen the movie I Heart Huckabees? It's like an existential comedy with Mark Wahlberg and Jason Schwartzman. I'm sorry, no. No. That's really good. Well, there's a scene where he hooks up with these existential detectives to try to solve his, like, neuroses. And one of them leads him back home to his mom, Jason Schwartzman's character, back home to his parents. And they discover in his, like, childhood diaries, um you know, written in crayon, a note about um, a time when his cat died and he went to go tell his mom and his mom was too busy talking with um, some neighbor to pay attention to him. So he like ran away and it was like something small and it's like very moving, right? Because like something small Mm -hmm. like that, you know, is, is a, is a lack of affirmation and like an attempt to reach out to the person who's supposed to Mm -hmm. regulate you. And that, and that affirmation, and that affirmation is denied. Right. Like, and then what's internalized? Oh, you don't care. I'm not important. Okay, I have to deal with this myself. Mm-hmm. Now, back More to the good anxiety. enough mothering caveat. If this hap- this happens all the time with the best parents. Yes, it even happened absolutely. with Mary. Yes. Yeah. It was the, you know, the honey we left our kids narrative from Luke's gospel, yeah. you know? So, we, so it's like, yes. what, what is expected of Christian parents? Deacon Basil. We got Deacon cracking Basil to laugh. Yeah, it's cracking up about that much. It's so. awesome. What is expected of Christian yeah. parents is not perfection. It's good enough parenting. That's what that's what the experts say. Abs- absolutely. And and that's only damaging if that's consistent sure. and almost every time the child's coming and the mm-hmm. mother is dismissive. Correct. And I, I remember um, John Gottman 
in one of his studies, he said, is that if you can be a good parent about 40% of the time. Yeah, you you're, you're doing you're good. You're doing really good. If that good. applies to therapy, then I'm crushing yeah, it. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I think I'm at least at 45%. Yeah. It depends on the week. But yeah. Oh, man. No, it's true. It's I, true. I think, I think there's some real depth there. I'm sure you... I had something to you say. You had something and it was and really the, profound. Yes. Yeah, I always say that when my when my phone vibrates in my pocket because I forget to turn it off in, in therapy and I'm like, I was about to say something really, really profound. Yeah. But, Such uh, a good out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of the real insights, and I think we touched a little bit on this, Sheree, in, mm-hmm. in the EFT one um, a couple of weeks back, but but what we, we've really found with attachment mm-hmm. is that it's not just child-parent relationships. Yeah. It's adult to adult relationships, mm-hmm. it's I don't know, spousal relationships. It's absolutely all of those different kind of relationships. We're going to kind of talk a little yeah, bit more about that. Yeah, and I'd love to go more in depth with that. Yep. And actually, I have a little quote I like to share with everybody yeah. that that I had, and it's actually Winnie the Pooh. And you <laughs> know, A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. I yeah, know. That's Come on, it's Winnie the Pooh, and absolutely. that movie's out right now. I still haven't seen it, but. Oh, there's a new one. I don't like yeah. when they remake those classics. Or Christopher Robin. It's called Christopher Robin. I still need to see it. We'll but anyways, there's this quote in, in this idea of Piglet is sidled up to Pooh from behind. And Pooh, he whispered, yes, Piglet. Nothing, said Piglet, taking Pooh's paw. So he's kind of giving him a hug. And, he, and then Piglet says, I just wanted to be sure of you. Oh! Oh! So cute. <laughs> I think that, that so. sums up attachment in its entirety. I'm yeah. into it. All right. So. Well, thank you so much, guys. This was really great. We'll see you all next time. Time to disengage, but be sure to return to the secure base of our podcast next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The Catholic Psyche Podcast. Take care. Take care.